Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. I'm Bob Schramm, the director of the Center for the Political Future at USC Dornsife. I'm here with our co-director, Mike Murphy, for a new edition of our podcast, The Bully Pulpit. We will have a discussion with our guests for 40 to 45 minutes and then open it up to questions from our audience. Now let me introduce two extraordinary people. Jessica Lal is the president and CEO of the Central City Association, CCA, an advocacy group focused on promoting a vibrant business climate in downtown Los Angeles and increasing economic opportunity across the region. We're thrilled that Jessica will join us as our Barbara Boxer Fellow this fall to lead a study group on local leadership and community change. Elon Carr served as the U.S. Special Envoy to monitor and combat anti-Semitism in the Trump administration. He was also a Deputy District Attorney in Los Angeles County, a candidate for Congress who almost pulled off a legendary upset, and a decorated officer in the United States Army Reserve. We're thrilled that he, too, will be joining the center as our 2022 Pollock Foundation Fellow to lead a study group on America and anti-Semitism, how the United States wrestles with the world's oldest hatred. I also want to acknowledge that Jeff Pollock from the Pollock Foundation is with us today, and I want to thank him for his generous support for the Fellows Program and for the Center for the Political Future. Let me begin with a separate question for each of you. Jessica, you initially ran for mayor of Los Angeles, but eventually decided to drop out. Why? And where do you think the race for mayor stands now? Well, thank you so much for having me, and it's an honor to be here with my colleague, Alon. Um, As you mentioned, I launched my campaign for mayor in September of last year with really a specific focus on bringing new leadership, fresh perspectives to the city. I thought I had a unique experience working inside City Hall and outside over the last decade. I really was passionate about putting forward solutions on our homelessness crisis and our housing crisis, which are clearly connected. Um, I still believe this is what our city needs, and I stepped out of the race earlier this year, as often a lot of candidates do, uh, due to really the ability to continue to fundraise. I was really proud that as the only first-time candidate, we finished third in the reporting period. As a first-time candidate, you, you probably, your listeners know how competitive and difficult it is, especially going up against many of the well-established candidates in a crowded race. Um, but I think we have a lot more to do around fundraising and campaign finance reform to allow for new candidates to be more competitive in this race. Uh, where I think the race stands now is I think it's really anyone's race. Uh, the primary clearly, I think, showed us uh, some surprising results as it related to turnout, who actually voted, the timing of those votes. And I think there's a lot that the candidates are probably going to learn and take away um, apply it to the general um, some of you may know that this is also the first time that the local races will coincide with the federal midterm. So there's a lot of unique unknown factors um, that I think are going to impact the race. And your guess is as good as mine. But I think as people start to pay more attention, what we're really going to be looking for is the candidates to really humanize themselves 
and to talk really specifically, not about just the goals that they have and what they want to achieve, but actually how they're going to get there. I think the devil's always in the details and voters are going to be really interested in getting into the specifics and really understanding who the candidates are and who's really going to be able to lead our city out of the multitude of crises that we're currently facing. Great. Elon, my separate question for you is, what was it like to work in the Trump administration, especially in a position that I don't think existed before you filled that position, although it's there's you now have a successor in the Biden administration. But what was it like to work in that position and in that administration? Well, first of all, Bob, Mike, thank you so much for having me, not only on this uh, podcast, but having me at USC. It's an honor and a special shout out to Jeff Pollitt for his generosity and allowing me the great privilege of teaching USC's great students. Jessica, it's great fun to do this with you. It's an honor. You know, I'll tell you, it was a thrill to work in the Trump administration. I think for anybody to serve our country in a presidential administration is it's breathtaking. You, you really have the opportunity to make a difference. And so much of us, right? So many of us want to make a difference and, and to be serving in an administration is, uh, is remarkably rewarding. And, uh, and it's really a thrill. And now in particular, the Trump administration was really a high impact administration from a standpoint of policy. You know, whether it's uh, a criminal justice reform domestically, repatriating of, of, you know, billions of dollars that were overseas and bringing them back to our country, um, uh, supporting the national defense and law enforcement, uh, foreign policy achievements, peace in the Middle East, right? I mean, it, remarkable things were happening. And to be a part of that was really, really a thrill. And I will tell you, Bob, from my portfolio in particular, being in charge of the fight against this awful sickness that is Jew hatred, the, the often called the world's oldest hatred. Well, I will tell you, to be part of an administration that prioritized this like no other, that was committed in unprecedented fashion to protecting the Jewish people throughout the world, to fighting anti-Semitism, and to supporting the state of Israel, was a remarkable privilege. And it allowed me really to do, I mean, I you know, tripled the size of the team. Actually, I had uh, predecessors in office. It was created by statute. Congress created this role in 2004. Well, I tripled the size of the team. I was able to post real diplomatic achievements. And that's because everyone understood that it's not just, you know, it's a special envoy cares about this. No, they understood that, that my boss, Secretary Pompeo, uh, was deeply committed to this issue. And his boss, the president, was deeply committed to this issue. I'm going to tell you, you know, this is the United States of America. When you have the president of the United States and the secretary of state uh, deeply committed to a, to a, you know, a foreign policy priority, um, that's incredibly powerful and it's transformative. And so it was, it was a thrill and a gift to be a, to be a part of that great effort. Mike, you want to throw a question in here? Yeah, I'll get to and one. Thank you all for joining our uh, cabal here at USC. We're really looking forward to having you with our students and the programming we do. One of our core missions here is to not take the politics out of politics, but take some of the anger out of it. We've lost as a nation our ability to disagree aggressively, but agreeably. You know, often there's this kind of gospel of bipartisanship. We all have to agree on everything. Bob and I disagree on almost everything except that fantastic tie, but we we're still friends. He's my opponent. He's not my enemy. So that's been lost in American politics. We're trying to regain it. 
I'd love from both of you to get your take on kind of this tribalism we have now where everything is zero sum. You know, for me to win, you have to die. I'm right. You're evil. And how we w- rebuild a politics where we can disagree. But the analogy I always use is I'm from Michigan. We have the Michigan Ohio football game and it's very passionate. But at the end, we don't burn down the stadium and kill everybody. You know, not good for football. So why don't we start with you, Jessica? You've been a candidate. I I should add, by the way, we left out, I think, and I may be wrong here if I got the fact wrong, but the greatest part of your bio, you were also a candidate for uh, student body president here at USC, correct? Yes, I was the student body president at USC my last year and the great privilege. Great learning ground as well. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So there, there you go. But, you know, you've been a candidate. You've dealt with angry voters. You, you deal with the political system. And then, Elon, I want to take it to you, too. What are your observations about this and ideas for how we might make some progress? Yeah, this is a really important question. I think the work of the center gets at the core of this, which is why it's for me an honor to be truly a part of it. Um, We're living in such polarizing times. I think polling shows us that more people care about marrying someone of now their own political party than they do anything else. And that's really a, a, a staggering thing to think about. Um, I think we really lost the ability to agree to disagree and to value having that kind of conversation. I definitely saw this as a candidate. Um, you know, one anecdote that I will share and that I think is important is giving people more uh, credibility and, and being more honest and direct with them about your views when you do have the opinion. So I'll give an example you know, I'm a very pro-housing candidate. Um, that can be a very controversial issue in different parts of the city. And I went into a neighborhood council group that was sort of anti some policies coming out of the state for fear of how it was going to impact their communities, which is a very valid concern. And I've had in my current role in CCA supported these positions. And I went in and we had a discussion internally about how strongly I should stand by that decision. But I was really open and direct when asked about it. And I, I fully expected to get sort of kicked out of the meeting and, and no one ever want to speak to me again. But I explained my thinking. I um, asked them questions to better understand their perspective, coming from a sincere place and trying to find areas where we could actually agree and expound upon that. And I'll say, you know, I got asked some tough questions. But after that meeting was over, some of my strongest supporters actually came from that conversation. And I think what I took away from that was people really do want you to be direct with them. They want to understand your values, your your thought, and trust that you are going to come to them and seek their input. And I don't think this is a silver bullet. It's going to solve anything. But I think that we see so much pandering in politics, uh, people trying to say what they think people want to hear, and then they go and do something else. And I think that reads distrust, uh, which I think is fundamental to being able to overcome and build consensus towards uh, different ways of thinking and acting. So, you know, I think that's one learning lesson that I take away and want to apply in other places of my life to do my part in terms of bringing more um, sincere discussion around difficult issues that are going to continue. You know, I could agree with Jessica Moore, and and I'm I'm glad you posed this question because this is not only you know, this mood we're in is not only distasteful and unpleasant, it is dangerous. It is dangerous for the future of the Republic. Our 
The very fabric of our body politic is fraying. I wrote an op-ed about this after the 2016 election. And I said, my goodness, what's going on? This is getting worse and worse every year. And, uh, and I tell you, this is, um, I mean, it is, it is a combination of, of, of tribalism, hatred, and irrationality. Because, you know, it's one thing to be tribal, but, but rationality, hopefully, will always bring a person back to the issues, to the evidence, to the facts. But, but, you know, many of us have abandoned that. And it's tribalism with, with really sort of pathological irrationality. And it is, it's terrible. Jessica talked about the marriage poll. I saw that poll as well. I'm, I'm proud to say I'm a, I'm a lifelong Republican. My wife is a lifelong Democrat. And, and I'll tell you, we, we agree on, you know, 90% of the issues because when you talk issues, you know, look, who, who doesn't want, who doesn't want clean air and clean water? Who doesn't want good jobs and good wages and an expanding private sector? Who doesn't want a strong national defense that protects us and our children? You know, these are issues that, that can bring us all together. Now, of course, the devil is, I'm not naive. The devil is in the details. How you get there? Of course, there are differences. But you know, when you start with commonality, and I think here really is the bottom line. This is, this is the case in, you know, in this great, democratic experiment that is the United States, but it's also the case in our personal relationships and in our marriages. If you start with the differences, if you focus on what divides you, the marriage is going to end. And God forbid should our republic face that fate. But if you focus on on the vast, the vast acreage of common ground that unites us and brings us together, you find that the differences are surmountable. And this is really critical. We've got to start not only focusing, but teaching. This has got to start in schools. We've got to teach, first of all, critical thinking. We've also got to teach, you know, the, the basic DNA of America, what this country is founded on, the principles that have made our country great, and all of those great, wonderful, beautiful things that unites us. And then, you know what? The differences seem far, far less important. And that's really a, a recipe that is not only important, I would say essential, for the, the survival and the continued prosperity of our country. Oh, just quickly, you know, I'm reminded, I have a friend who's a now retired, well, semi-retired legendary ad man. He's the guy who wrote lines like BMW, the ultimate driving machine. And he's been out trying to sell the idea that some sort of common civics education has been lost and that democracy is so important it can't be told it needs to be sold. I think now in the world we have of digital media where everybody can talk to everybody instantly for free, hate speech has had a huge comeback uh, as an offset of this tribalism. So I was going to ask you just quick briefly, and then we'll go to Bob. What do we do about that? How do we balance our cherished First Amendment rights with the ability now to have hate speech not just be scrawled on a tree near your hut in the woods somewhere, but go to a million people through social media with algorithms that often reward hot conversations where hate speech is amplified. And when you solve that, then we've saved democracy. So no pressure. I couldn't agree more. This is a vexing public policy challenge. And look, in America, you know, we, we regard the First Amendment as a gift, not a burden. Um, right. Just because uh, we refuse to censor vile hate speech. And, and that's what the First Amendment means, right? We do not censor speech based on content, even when it's wrong, even when it's morally wrong and vile and despicable. You know, we all know about the Stokie case, right? Supreme Court said that, you, you know, the American Nazi Party could march in Stokie, Illinois. That's the First Amendment. 
Um, but that doesn't mean there's nothing we can do. And that's the key part of this. Uh, to say that, well, we don't censor doesn't mean we fold up our arms and, and watch this happen and don't do anything about it. Um, now, first of all, you know, a civics education is key. I couldn't agree with you more. But let's talk nuts and bolts about this particular issue. In, in our administration, the Trump administration, we organized the first ever, by, by the way, Secretary Pompeo convened this, the first ever U.S. government-sponsored conference on combating online hate because we realized that, that online hate is profoundly effective and transformative. At the speed of a click, you know, a despicable hater can reach tens of thousands of people right. across the world and now there's research uh, done in Europe showing that the period of time required to radicalize a person to violence, literally to undertake a violent action, is a fraction of the time when the radicalization occurs online as opposed to offline. So now we have data showing that it is powerful, transformative, and is real and tragic offline effects. So look, we had a number of solutions. It's complicated, but you know, I'll just run through very quickly. One thing is yeah. to is to encourage businesses to funnel their advertising dollars voluntarily to funnel those dollars away from sites that that tend to have uh, haters and 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 uh, and tend to to propagate that kind of hate. Another thing is to track and monitor because tracking and monitoring is is critical. Now there's there are remarkable organizations use, using artificial intelligence that can track how this hate spread comes out. It's very much like a public health pandemic. Right. There are centers, there are hubs of transmission where, where, you know, these things tend to propagate. And if you have activists join in, again, all voluntary to fire back and respond to these nodes of hate on the internet, that can be very effective. There are all kinds of things we can do, but it requires coordination between internet platforms, civic society and governments. But censorship is not the answer. And, and I'll conclude with this, nor is it the answer to delegate the censorship to private companies. Uh, just because, you know, just because the U.S. government can't do it, that doesn't mean we want Twitter to be a, a, a censor of, of content speech or Facebook or anyone else because, because we don't trust them to do it right. But there are things we can do and we've got to take this seriously uh, because we really are all imperiled by this, this pandemic of hate on the internet and social media. Completely agree. I think that there's a distinction between the hate speech itself and the amplification into and then violent acts. And I think that's what we have to focus on. I think along just outline uh, that there does need to be regulation on the latter part of that and what that looks like. I think we're still trying to figure out, but we can strike that balance. Um, but I think that's really where the rubber meets the road on this. And we must protect free, free freedom of speech is a core tenet of our democracy. And um, I, I agree that we're not teaching it. I think people, young people, especially uh, who are on social media think that they ascertain sort of civics through, you know, characters of 120. And it's it's not really a way to instill and to challenge and those critical thinking skills that we must remain committed to if we're going to find the appropriate balance here of how to have this great technology that does bring so many benefits, but, you know, uh, check it in the sense that it's creating violence and extremism here in our country. Mm -hmm. Well, Mike, you stole my follow-up and our mutual <laughs> and our mutual friend Martin Puris, who's so focused on civic education. Right. So let me move on to this, and I think it's related too. You both have a lot of experience in 
diplomacy of one kind or another. Elon with other countries, Jessica with businesses, officials in the city of Los Angeles, the constituents you referred to that you had to talk to about housing. How polarized is the world, not just America? And how polarized is the city? And Jessica, you can go first if you want. Sure. I mean, I think it's extremely polarized, unfortunately. I think being in civic life has become more personal than ever. And I, I truly believe and see every day how fear is the byproduct of increased polarization. And that fear turns into an intimidation and people being afraid to activate their, their civic, you know, whatever they believe. And that's really challenging. Yeah, I see this where we have members who are afraid, for example, to go to city council meetings and testify. They're afraid for their safety. They're afraid of being sort of canceled on social media. I've seen and I've experienced myself a fear of actually running for office. The safety concerns that come with that. I have a two-year-old daughter and, you know, I had a lot of people focusing on, do I really want to take that on? And that's a very sad and uncomfortable reality that I think we have to talk about and be honest about if we're going to overcome this. Uh, but in terms of CCA and trying to build coalitions, you know, the public, the private government to come together you know, we've noticed a, a, a difference. People are afraid of how they're going to be perceived to sit at the table with somebody who has an opposite perspective or comes from a different sector. This is really challenging our advocacy work and our ability to put forward comprehensive solutions just simply out of fear of the backlash from folks' constituents. Um, for me, I think that strong communication and openness, again, goes a long way in terms of building those relationships. You have to start from a place of a shared goal or a value and be willing to agree to disagree. And again, focusing on the places you would do agree and, and sort of expanding from there. But I'm, this is something that worries me. I think our organization, and I think this is sort of a microcosm of what we're seeing nationally, that if stakeholders in a city like Los Angeles can't even come together and be willing to sit and talk and then take that to City Hall and, you know, it, 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 it really is alarming. And I think it's something that we have to really push to, um, to overcome. And I think the extremism on, uh, this both sides is, is, is sort of fueling that fear and intimidation. Elon, let's take this to the world. And I'm thinking, for example, of the role you had and what we're seeing in parts of Eastern Europe, which is, blatant anti-Semitism combined with calls for race purity. I mean, how do you deal with that? Yeah, so the polarization is global. I mean, there's no question about that. Uh, there are a number of reasons for it. One is actually um, the rise of, of nationalism in Europe as a response or perhaps um, in, a, in sort of a symbiotic resonance with the rise of anti-national, left-wing anti-nationalism, right-wing nationalism. And, and, and by the way, the nationalism, nationalism by itself doesn't necessarily come with the package of supremacism and hatred and, and anti-Semitism. But, you know, there certainly has been as well, the ultra right, the far right, uh, the ethnic supremacists have, have risen as well and are poisons. And, and so we are seeing that and extremism and the rise of extremism is part of it. But another driver of all this, and we talked about this uh, in response to your last question is the internet and social media. And the fact that people can gin themselves up by resonating with a single kind of ideological position 
and confine all of their information and all of their circle of online interactions with one particular viewpoint and entirely censor from their, from their exposure, uh, any alternative viewpoint or even anybody who might point out the danger of the patheron is extremely destructive. And that's what we're seeing in the United States. That's what we're seeing in Europe. You said Eastern Europe. It's not only Eastern Europe. I mean, there's enormous polarization in Western Europe as well. And you can look at recent elections and, and, and what's happening with, with coalitions. Um, everywhere from, from, uh, you know, from the UK to, to Eastern Europe to Israel. I mean, there is, we're seeing, um, really a, a period of incredible acrimony. In, in public discourse. And, uh, and we have got to, again, we've got to focus on things that bring us together and, uh, and solve these problems. Uh, you know, as all, as all, you know, if look, uh, we sink the boat, nobody survives, right? And, and we've got to, we've got to start hammering home, uh, what, what it takes to have a country and have a country succeed. And that's the case for us as Americans, but also this is a recipe for every country in the world. Yoren, can you give me an example? of a difficult situation you had to cope with in your role as the envoy to combat anti-Semitism and what you did about it? Sure. You know, I, I think that when you're doing diplomacy and you're making asks, I mean, if you're, if you're doing diplomacy the way it should be doing, you are making significant asks of your interlocutors, right? Otherwise, why bother? And before I went into, you know, before I visited a foreign capital, I did my homework and I, I prepared extensively and I knew exactly what was going well in that country and what wasn't going well in that country. And, you know, I mean, I was diplomatic as a diplomat should be, you know, thank you for ABCD. We appreciate it. Let's now talk about, you know, DEFG, that kind of thing. And, and, you know, the challenge is always how hard to push. Now, thankfully, and this was, I'm often asked uh, what, what was my most pleasant surprise in my role? And I, I have to tell you that the, the, the happiest surprise was the extent to which the United States of America is listened to. You know, these are sovereign countries. They'll make their own decision, as they well should. But, you know, I, nobody told me to take a hike. I mean, when I made a request, sometimes it was a very big ask. And the response I always got was, well, okay, we'll see what we can do. And I will tell you that I can't, without disclosing diplomatic confidences, uh, some countries did remarkably... Um, I mean, significant things in response to requests are made. I mean, look, one country, one country withdrew a piece of legislation from its parliament. I mean, you can't get a bigger ask than, than, you know, you've got a, you've got a bill on the floor. Take it, take it down. I mean, that's a very big ask. And, you know, that was done. And so it really, really remarkable. But the challenge is now the question is, what's the challenge? What happens when a country says no? Okay. It's always polite. It was never rude, but there were not many occasions, but there were one or two occasions when the response was no. Well, then you've got to say, okay, how important is this issue? And if the issue is important, what are we willing to do? Because just to walk away and say, okay, I did my part. It's tempting because you want to avoid confrontation. Okay. I asked, they said no. But if the issue is really important, you've got to know to say, okay, no, we're not taking no for an answer. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to start turning the screws. These are things you want from us and we're cutting them off. And, and that is a very difficult thing to do with an ally. We're talking about countries that are, you know, I mean, I didn't deal with Iran, right? So we're talking about countries that are, that are allies in a deep and long, you know, with real longevity and real partnership. And so that is delicate and has to be done very carefully. So I would say the most challenging thing in diplomacy 
is knowing which battles to fight, which battles not to fight. And when you're going to fight them, how to fight them. Uh, what you're going to, what, what pressures would you will apply, which screws you'll turn. I think that really is the key. And that is challenging. I wonder if Alon would probably agree. I think the pandemic has exacerbated this significantly. I think that having to operate virtually, not seeing people in person, not getting to go out to dinner or grab a drink or the sort of normal socializing that kind of creates that human fabric of connection has really been taken off the table over the last couple of years. And I think there's a certain degree of people able to have this sort of vitriolic behavior, hiding behind a screen, hiding behind a keyboard, and not having to deal sort of with the consequences of the face-to-face interaction. So I, again, I don't know how much on a global scale that is maybe impacted, but I think on a local scale, that has really exacerbated this problem. And I think people coming back have a lot of anxiety in addition to sort of just the normal psychological impact, you know, just sort of being disconnected has created for a lot of people. And it's forced us into our own sort of echo chambers more severely than if we were out in the world operating, you know, as normal. Yeah, Jessica, I do agree with what you said. I think that's a very important point. If the internet and social media is an effective transmitter of hate, then of course, as the world went online, uh, so did so did all the pathologies go online and were transmitted that much more effectively. I can tell you, in the in the realm of of anti-Semitism and combating Jew hatred, I mean, it was there was a tsunami of anti-Semitism uh, starting in March, April, May when everything went online. Tsunami of anti-Semitism. Um, in the first, uh, in, in, in the, in, after the shutdowns in, in the, maybe the eight months of 2020, there were literally millions of posts that were anti-Semitic that were measured. And that's just in the visible web. That's just in the, in the visible social media. And the deep web is far worse and far more, uh, ghastly in what's expressed there. I mean, as bad as we think social media is, once you go to the, the deep web and you accord these people any, you know, veil of anonymity, the, the, the vile things that are said openly is your hair stands on it at this stuff. And it is, it's just awful. It's awful. So a quick kind of follow-up, kind of a cousin of this question, Alan and I, I'm, Jessica, you probably will have thoughts too. On the diplomacy side of it, anti-Semitism and the whole U.S.-Israel relationship, which is so key to both countries for such a long time, there's been some turbulence. You know, there are some elements of the Republican Party that I think undercut uh, the traditional relationship. There's some elements on the left of the Democratic Party uh, that have been undercutting what traditionally has been an extremely strong bipartisan consensus on Israel. And there are critics in the U.S. who would point, I think, particularly to President Netanyahu during his time for criticizing him for playing American politics pretty aggressively and you know, having a personality that can be controversial, at least among some. You probably swam through this a lot in your former job, and I'm sure you're a very acute and informed observer now. Where do you think the relationship stands now? Is it repairing? What steps may be needed? I mean, what what's your take on this whole thing? Because it's not where it was at its pinnacle some years ago. There have been, there've been years of bumpiness, you know, like any, any important by lateral relationship but i'd love your take on all this and what you think the best path forward for both countries is yeah it's a terrific question and and there were periods of bumpiness and uh 
recent recent history and not so recent history. Um, you know, look, I would say this: the United States is still uh, pretty much the most philo-Semitic country in the world. Polls show this. Um, Jews are highly regarded among Americans, among rank and file Americans, and Israel is highly regarded. Israel Israel's favorability numbers in polls is off the charts. And there are many countries in the world where that's the case. Americans truly treasure the Jewish people and the state of Israel. And that is a wonderful thing. There are many historical reasons for it. It's not only because of, you know, shared security challenges. It's, 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 it's deep. It has to do with values, Judeo-Christian values, but that's still going strong. But I will tell you what the warning signs are. Um, the, the red flag is what's happening in academia. And, you know, just like we're not teaching civics and American values. And, and by the way, how did we ever think that, that, you know, we, we can forget to teach, you know, basic constitutional structure and, uh, and American values, the creed on which our country was built and think that the next generation is going to be committed to it. I mean, why would we have ever thought some, something like that? Well, so too, um, there is a forced indoctrination against against Israel and frankly in many cases Jews going on uh, it started on college now it's going now it's in high schools and and middle schools and sometimes elementary schools and it is it is terrifying you know I'll tell you that it, it, in the in the in the ascendancy of the Jeremy Corbyn cabal uh, in in the UK when he might have been the next prime minister and the world was in trepidation over this a very brave labor, uh, MP who walked out of the Labour Party. This MP said, "I won't sit in the same table with anti-Semites." Lifelong Labour MP. This MP said to me, "You know, this disaster we have in the UK all started on the campuses, and we did nothing because we said, well, it's just students.' And then it moved into the Labour Party, and we did nothing because we said, well, it's just the far-left fringe.' And today they won, and we lost, and I no longer have a political party. And I, I have to tell you, I was, I, I had to sit down when I heard this because. You can't think of a more clarion call of, of warning about what's happening here. And so too, you know, I'm now with the Heritage Foundation as a visiting fellow. We just did a study at Heritage, uh, gauging anti-Semitism in America, uh, not asking, do you hate Jews? Right. But, but using cues and uh, positions on all kinds of issues that kind of test whether a person has a, a kind of a disfavorable inclination toward the Jewish people generally. And you know what we found out? This this will come probably is no surprise to you. It didn't surprise me, but now we have data. The more educated the American and the more elite the education, the more anti-Semitic they are, right? And so it's not about ignorance or poverty. This kind of notion that, oh, hate stems, springs from ignorance or springs from lack of privilege. No, it springs from indoctrination. That's where hatred comes from. It's the same thing, by the way, in the jihadi world. There was, during the height of the Second Intifada, when buses and streets were blowing up in Israel, they did a survey. The majority of Palestinian suicide bombers were middle class and educated. Why? Because it's those people that are subject to a forced, focused indoctrination. And we're seeing the results of this. And this is absolutely outrageous. This is what we're seeing in Congress. It's not the ethnicity of the loudest voices that are anti-Semitic. It's not their ethnicity. It's their age. They were at college recently. And the things they're saying in Congress is, is spoken as orthodoxy on, on campuses. You mean in college, not Congress? No, the things that are say, said oh. in Congress now oh, are, I see. are spoken orthodoxy on campus. 
Oh, and I so see. You want to bring real diversity, right? Real diversity to 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 campus life and to education. And that means diversity of ideas, diversity of thought, diversity of positions, and and inculcating our our young Americans in critical thinking and critical reasoning. That, by the way, not only solves the anti-Semitism problem, that solves the polarization problem. That solves the anti-Americanism problem. Bringing good values, balance, critical reasoning to education. This is an absolute critical prescription for our future. I have to say, by the way, that I know you're referring to Ian Austin, who was a member of the British Parliament and is now Lord Austin, and who did do a brave thing. But the one disagreement I have with you is Jeremy Corbyn was never going to become prime minister of the United Kingdom. It just was not going to happen. Well, I think one of the great success stories, you know, we, we talk about rising anti-Semitism globally and we woe is us, but there are a lot of, a lot of success stories. I think one of the biggest success stories, I, I actually had the great pl- privilege of speaking in parliament, uh, in London, uh, about Jeremy Corbyn and what that represents. Uh, I'll tell you, one of the great success stories was his Stunning defeat. And not only was he defeated, but regular rank and file Brits and Poles, many of them responded to polls by saying anti-Semitism was one of the reasons that, they, I mean, they were embarrassed for the United Kingdom. They, they were appalled by it. And you know, that is a tremendous, that's transformative. It's a tremendous win. When Theresa May says anti-Semitism has no place in our country. And, and when, when ordinary Brits say this is embarrassing for, for, for England, this is a huge success. And, uh, and so his defeat was a big deal. But I, I'll tell you, Bob, people were worried. I mean, you can't deny that people were very worried he would occupy number 10 Downing Street. I know personally that the Jewish community in the UK, there was a huge run on apartments in Israel. People were buying. They were scared to death. And they said publicly, this will end the Jewish community in the UK. They were very afraid. So you can't deny that that was real fear. I did a lot of campaigns in Britain. And one of the ways I knew Ian was that he was press secretary to Prime Minister Gordon Brown, who actually, I think, was the first British prime minister ever to speak to the Knesset. So in a way, I would argue that Jeremy Corbyn was an outlier here in terms of the traditions of the of the leadership of the Labour Party. And I never thought he could win. But I understand why people were fearful. Hey, my name's Weston Womp. I'm the host of Swamp Stories, a podcast presented by Issue One that dives into political reform with a bipartisan lens, exploring the problems facing our democracy and offering solutions. Hear elected officials, activists, and experts from across the political spectrum discuss issues ranging from slush funds in Congress and dark money to gerrymandering and election disinformation, and importantly, how to fix America's broken political system and build a better democracy. Find Swamp Stories wherever you get podcasts or at swampstories.org. Now, I want to shift this for a minute. And start with Jessica, if I can, because she has to deal with this at a, at a business level almost every day. And I think it's a question that we don't focus much on because we're tired. COVID was mentioned earlier, but right now the pandemic seems to be psychologically over, but not biologically over. We're seeing a rise in cases here in Los Angeles. We're seeing high, much higher death rates here in LA than in San Francisco. Do you think political leaders, Jessica, are handling this issue the right way? And what should they be doing differently? 
this is a complicated question, just like all the other questions. Um, let's start with the, the fact that governing a mega metropolis through a crisis with ever changing facts and data, really through bureaucracies, which are set up to move slowly, is really, really challenging. And I think what we've seen here in LA and LA County is, you know, really good intentions, trying to follow the science, trying to consider the economy families, public sentiment, um, but also just in a, in an effort to move fast and swiftly, I think oftentimes as we've come up with rules and regulations, we haven't always taken the time to consult with the industries that are going to be directly impacted by these rules and regulations to make sure they are in fact practical, that they are in fact addressing their intended, you know, intended outcomes. And I think as a result, um, you know, we've seen some distrust. We've seen false starts. I think a one-size-fits-all approach is really challenging in a, an economy as as complex as L.A. County. Um, unfortunately, the pandemic is also an excellent example about how something can become highly politically polarizing when it is, in fact, sort of a health pandemic. Um, we've seen this with masks and with the potential for masks coming back. I, I think, you know, the governor has rolled out an endemic approach for the state, which unless something dramatically changes, is I think an approach that makes sense to a lot of us. But again, as we've discussed with almost all of the other topics, the devil is in the details and bringing people along in a way that doesn't just, um, you know, we're not just sort of following a set of rules, but we're being in tune with the realities and the implications real time, I think is a real challenge and something that government especially different levels of government that are having to coordinate, you know, the city, the county, the state, the federal government, um, isn't really set up for. And so I think we're learning a lot. We're continuing to reflect and adapt. And, you know, God willing, we're not facing one of these health pandemics in our generation, but it next time we'll be better prepared, uh, to, to kind of learn and, and manage these nuances within regulating society. I've got a question for both of you, and then we might go to questions, which is, let's talk about the center and your your study groups, your seminars. We're very, you know, getting a lot of interest. So what do you, why don't you each take a few minutes and talk about what you're planning to do, what you're looking at, and, um, you know, what you hope that the students who participate will learn from? Sure. I'm really excited about our study group. Um, It's called Local Leadership and Community Systems Change. Uh, What that translates into English is that we're going to be exploring um, LA's dynamic context and what it means to actually be a leader within. We're going to look at how change happens across sectors, including local government, the private sector, nonprofit, doing a lot of what we're talking here today. How do you bring people together and catalyze change in a very polarizing environment? My hope personally is that students are going to learn about coalition building civic engagement at the local level and gain practical insights in how power is distributed across the ecosystem and share their reflections and expertise with their peers and hopefully better prepare them to be change agents in their communities once they graduate. Yeah, first of all, I have to say on the last question, I, I would actually, Bob, I'd actually flip the question. I would say, I would say that I think COVID is biologically over, but psychologically not over. I mean, it's biologically not gone, but it is endemic. And although it, it strikes some people with, with grievous effects, and I don't minimize that, uh, just like the flu does, right? 
Um, but, but psychologically, we're still, we're still, uh, uh, torturing a lot of Americans, uh, with, uh, with, uh, policies that, that I, I think are, are no longer needed. And, and I'll tell you, we talk about not following the science. What we've done to, to children in the state and many states, right? Across America is, uh, is heartbreaking, heartbreaking. And I think this is going to, we're going to see the results of this, uh, for years. We, we need to work very hard on, uh, on getting children back back up to speed because uh because that was really um uh, unforgivable what we did to america's kids um well i'm incredibly excited to be part of uh of the usc community a campus i know well over many years uh, where i've spent time uh with with many usc students over the years and um and i'm also so excited about about dornsife and the center for the political future because of what dornsife represents uh the antidote you are the antidote for so many of the the pathologies and cha- and civic challenges we've been discussing even even on this uh even on this webinar in the last in the last hour so um it's incredibly exciting what we're going to be talking about in our study group is the world's oldest hatred um what are the jewish people what is anti-semitism and why should this small little sliver of the world's population be the focus of so much angst and so much hatred and so much persecution. Um, we're going to look at that, sort of the ontology of anti-Semitism, um, uh, kind of to borrow a title from one of the, the books on the subject, why the Jews, right? Why, why are the Jews in the crosshairs? Um, but more than that, we're going to look at America's war against Jew hatred um, as an example of what it means to be a, a moral leader in the world. Right, a moral values-based foreign policy, and we're going to look at that concept of values-based foreign policy, uh, taking America's fight against anti-Semitism as a as the case study. So I'm very excited about this. It's a it's a great topic. It's a hot topic. Um, to say how hot it is, I'll, I'll tell you a story. I was on the Capitol Hill, and, and Brad Schneider, Congressman Schneider, walks up to me and he op- opens his phone and he starts flipping to all the top headlines. He says, "These are just random headlines." Look, anti-Semitism, 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 Israel hatred, anti. He says, "What is going on? This is like dominating, dominating the the headlines here." I that's right. Um, it's rising, and and people are shocked that you know it's it's been it's been less than eighty years since the end of the 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 most horrific bloodletting in the history of the world, with the Holocaust. Eighty years since it's ended, and Jew hatred is rising. How can that be? And that's what we're going to be discussing uh, in our study group and, and America's uh, response uh, to Jew hatred, a response that I would argue of which uh, we all can be very proud. Mike, you want to go to these audience questions? Yeah, thank you, Bob. And I apologize in advance if I mangled the pronunciation of your name. I'm terrible at that. I blame third grade. Savag Dikijian, again, apologies, Savag. A question from him to everybody. Is it true that being critical of Israel is anti-Semitic? Can Israel benefit from our criticism? Why don't Jessica and Elon, you take a shot at that? I would say no. Being critical of Israel is not being anti-Semitic, of course. Of course. Uh, not at all. One could be critical of any country. In fact, one of the um, main diplomatic initiatives of my team and of me when I was, uh, when I was in office was pushing for the adoption of sort of the gold standard internationally accepted definition of anti-Semitism. It's called the IHRA definition, IHRA. It's a definition put forth by the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. 
And the power of the definition is it provides 11 contemporary manifestations, examples of contemporary manifestations of anti-Semitism. And those educate us on on where hatred of Israel does is anti-Semitic. Now, of course, hatred of the nation state of the Jewish people, right? Hatred of the Jewish state is hatred of the Jewish people. But that doesn't mean criticism. Any country can be criticized and, and, and exceptions can be taken to Israeli policies. However, interestingly enough, one of the, one of the examples given is subjecting Israel to a double standard to which no other democracy in the world was held. That is an example of uh, anti-Semitism. So it's not, you know, it's, Israel can be criticized, but if there is a, a focus on Israel and in other countries, you know, no other country is focused on and Israel is, is, is attacked, let's say, for defending itself, well, then you have to ask, okay, what's the, you know, what's the motivation for that? So the IRA definition is a powerful, uh, a powerful tool. And it explicitly, it explicitly, explicitly says, by the way, criticism of Israel is not anti-Semitic. So it explicitly says, and yes, every country can benefit from fair, uh, balanced criticism. Absolutely, Israel can and America can. Okay, anonymous as a question. Do you think blue states will become bluer and red states will become redder over the next decade? Why or why not? And is that a good thing? I'll take a first crack at it. That has been the trend, though, as population growth is. It's really about counties. A bunch of the blue vote comes out of only about 200 counties in the U.S., really even 170. And there are over 3,100 counties. So it's more a concentration of vote. And that has been the trend. Whether it'll level off or continue, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'll tell, I'll tell a story about that. You know, um, as we know, uh, people are migrating en masse to Florida because Florida has done a very good job in so many different ways. But I'll tell you a story that is maybe different from what people expect. Um, I know many cases of, of Democrats who have moved to Florida because they're sick and tired of, of far-left politics and crime and everything else. And what I've heard from them in Florida is how nice it is that you can be a Democrat and a Republican and you can be public. You're not afraid to share your views. You're not afraid to say, I'm, I'm a registered X or a registered Y. And you're not afraid to say that I like President Trump or I hate President Trump. You can say all of these things and nobody cancels you and nobody attacks you. How refreshing is that? And so I think, you know, I, I think a lot of Americans are sick and tired of this kind of tyranny, this tyrannical orthodoxy that is being imposed on people, um, you know, especially in places like L.A. County and San Francisco and Chicago and some other places. And it's deeply unhealthy. And I think if there is a... A, a revolt against this. If people stand up and say enough is enough, we're not going to submit to this nonsense. I think that would be a great gift for America. I tried a Biden sticker in the villages in Florida, and luckily I could outrun an old golf cart. But I, I do take your point. Jessica, any thoughts on this? Yeah, you- I have a, a lot of thoughts on this. I, I was going to echo what you said, Mike, about where the trends are. I do find it worrisome. I think it's sort of like a cold war within our country with people moving into areas sort of like we do on social media where we're in again our own echo chambers i think the the larger implications of that and the federal government the court then you know have all sorts of ramifications um, that challenge the fundamentals of our democracy um i think you know areas where this is going to get interesting i was just meeting with a group of business leaders last night and we were talking about sort of the migration 
for businesses to Texas. Um, but now with, you know, a lot of the abortion policies in some of these states being so restrictive and, uh, you know, we don't need to get into that, but how uh, the messaging now is going to swing back potentially to states and local municipalities who are going to offer women more options of choice um, within their own personal health care. So I think it's, we're going to see, there, there's so many elements that go into this. I think the pandemic and people moving out and crime and homelessness have been sort of level one. And now with sort of what some of the decisions have come out of the court and how they are impacting states very differently. And um, it'll be interesting to see how those level out. But I, I don't think anyone moving to find people who have similar ideology as a reaction to maybe things that they aren't happy with in their own governments is good for democracy overall. First, I agree with Jessica that we have some new factors in the equation that are going to scramble these trends. And the most prominent of them, I think, is the recent Supreme Court repeal of Roe v. Wade. Uh, but we'll have to wait and see. And I'm going to civilly disagree, I hope, with Elon. I'm one Democrat who is not moving to Florida, where there is an attempt to impose another form of orthodoxy. Uh, so I, I, I think we talk about these trends and population moving and all that. I suspect California will continue to attract people. Uh, I suspect that we will continue to see this state be an economic leader. Uh, and I have plenty of friends, uh, who, uh, as Mike says, we don't agree on much of anything. Uh, but I don't think he feels compelled to, to leave Los Angeles. Well, wait a minute, Bob. <laughs> we're, we're, we're to see how that lift initiative to raise taxes. No, I love California, but I love Florida too. I know it well. I've done a lot of campaigns down there. I find Miami a fascinating cosmopolitan place. So, uh, and I like West Florida. I like Ocala, a lot of Florida I like. So, um, of course, neither can hold a candle to the great, great state of michigan which is uh but uh, um where i'm from so i i you can find well my well thoughtful civil people anywhere in america we just want to increase their numbers um and i you know i i always my wife is a liberal democrat and we go to dinner parties and i'll be the freak lord Greystoke, you know tarzan figure my god he can eat with a fork i've never met a republican before and she always teases me about it and said, well, we can always move to Dallas for a year and you're get to be the freak show because there is this kind of geographic tribalism. But I don't know. I think Americans are essentially nice and good. And uh, that's our nature. And I think we will over time return to it uh, when we uh, when we kind of remind ourselves of that. Jessica had something. Go ahead, Jessica. Yeah, if it's OK, maybe to thread a needle between Alon and Bob as a, as a Democrat here, um, I think. I think what we're seeing is states like Florida are really purple states, right? I mean, it, in terms of their population, I think what we're being challenged with is do our representatives that are elected because of gerrymandering and other things reflect the popular opinion of those in the state? And so we're seeing places that, you know, where more people have differing opinions are able to coexist, but the laws and policies coming out of those state governments are far more restricted in one direction or another that doesn't really reflect the population as a whole. And again, I think this is a huge challenge to democracy when you maybe have, you know, governments that are acting not reflecting majority opinion. 
Yeah, it's a tyranny of the primary electorate in both parties. This is why the L.A. mayor's race is interesting, because Rick Caruso is a very kind of unnatural thing for a city that voted for Bernie Sanders in the primary. Yet, I think he's in the hunt because people want to change. But anyway, we are out of time. I want to thank our incredible panel. I'm so looking forward to their uh, their seminars here at the center. You're going to be seeing more of them as we do more of these Zoom programs. And so, Bob, I'll turn it over to you to land the uh, land the plane here, which, like all planes, requires two wings to fly. <laughs> thank you all. Thanks, Elon. Thanks, Jessica. This was a really interesting discussion. And I want to thank our audience and all the people who have taken an interest in the center and supported the center. We'll see you on our next Bully Pulpit podcast. Thanks a lot. See you soon. Thank you. Thanks so much. This was good. It was fun. Thank you for joining us on the Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at USC POL Future. That's USC POL Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.